Today's episode is sponsored by Struggle Snuggles Ball Pythons. Struggle Snuggle is a small hobbyist breeder who wants to share the joy of ball pythons with new and experienced snake enthusiasts. Struggle Snuggle offers different types of morphs and standard non-morph pythons. Struggle Snuggle will offer insight on the first-time python owners and is available via email for questions on the continuation for healthy care of your new python. You can reach Struggle Snuggle through his Instagram at strugglesnuggle32257. That's strugglesnuggle32257. So you can get a look at the different type of snakes that he does own. Again, strugglesnuggle32257. His Instagram handle will be in the show notes. Now let's get on with the show. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The podcast is about to begin. Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 82 of the Graveyard Grumbler podcast. I am your host, Tina Romero Jr., a.k.a. the Graveyard Grumbler. Today's episode, we are taking it back to 2007. Now, for those of you who remember the news in 2007, I mean, there's been huge news cases throughout the, the centuries and whatever time frames. However, with this one in particular... I remember hearing about it, but at the time I wasn't, number one, hosting a podcast, so I didn't really care about the news. And number two, I just didn't care about the news. But I remember hearing this name over and over and over. And I was like, Jesus Christ, man, let's get over this already. Let's just get on with it. But little did I know what exactly was going on with what this name was tied to. Today's episode, episode 82, is going to be about the bizarre case of Amanda Knox. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is I was actually listening to the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, and she was a guest on that show. Now, a lot of times, I don't really listen to the Rogan podcast unless it's a guest that I'm really interested in about, like if Alex Jones is on there, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elon Musk, but this particular one, I knew somewhat about the murder case of, or the murder trial or the murder, yeah, the murder case of Amanda Knox, but I didn't know exactly what went on. I I just knew this and that and here and there and this and that, but I didn't know in detail what actually was being, what she was being accused of and what happened during the trial. So today, we're, we're, this is good. more than likely, this is going to be a two-part episode. There's just so much information on, on Amanda Knox and her, and her trial. It, it's, it's going to be a long one. It's going to be a two-parter. It seems like lately I've been getting stuck more and more doing two-part episodes. Anyway, let's, let me stop wasting time. Let's go ahead and get into it. So who, who is Amanda Knox? Amanda Knox was born July 9th, 1987 in Seattle, Washington, the eldest of three daughters born to Etta, a mathematics teacher originally from Germany, and Court Knox, a vice president of finance for Macy's. Knox and her sisters were raised in West Seattle. Her parents divorced when she was 10 years old, after which her mother remarried of Chris, remarried to Chris Mellas, an information technology consultant. Now, just based off of what we just read, there's not really much information on, on her, on any huge evidence that she had a, a horrible childhood. You know, I mean, now, I mean, divorce is horrible on, on any child around that age. However, we, we don't see any signs or any reports of her being abused. I mean, growing up in West Seattle, you know, to two uh, successful parents and then uh, having a successful stepfather, you don't really get any hint that Amanda Knox had, had a, a fucked up childhood. Let's, con- let's continue. Knox first traveled to Italy on a family holiday at the age of 15. During that first trip to Italy, she visited Rome, Pisa, and Amalfi, the Amalfi Coast, and the ruins of Pompeii. Upon reading Under the Tuscan Sun, which was given to her by her mother, Amanda's interest in the country increased. Now, I'm going to apologize to all my Italian-speaking listeners and to my Italian-speaking listeners. (laughs) I'm probably going to jack up a lot of these names. Again, before every episode, I try really, really, really hard to Google a lot of, of the names and, and words that, that I try to read. But because I do so much reading and so much into the pod, I, I usually forget on, I usually forget the pronunciation pronunciation sometime around <laughs> when the words come up. So I, I, I apologize for butchering it. Please don't hang me at the stake. 
just enjoy the podcast. Knox graduated from Seattle Preparatory School in 2005 and then studied linguistics at the University of Washington. In 2007, she made the dean's list at the university. She worked at she worked at, a, at part-time jobs to fund an academic year in Italy. Relatives described the 20-year-old Knox as outgoing but unwary. Her stepfather had strong reservations about her going to Italy that year as he felt she was still too naive. Now, I understand about letting your kids, you know, fly, fly, let, you know, go explore the world. But, yeah, and I understand that a lot of people go overseas and they do, they, they, they go study abroad. I understand that. But at the same time, you know, how, how much do you really want to let your kids fly, fly and, and have the possibility of something going awry? You know, it, it, the, the possibility of that happening in another country is, I mean, the, just that happening in your own country it, the, the the high probability is there, but then for something to happen in another country, that's even that, that's even uh, that's an, a, a, an even higher percentage of something going wrong. Let's continue. Going to Italy, Knox had come to Perugia for its universities, and because they had fewer tourists in Florence, a more popular destination for foreign students. The city had reportedly not had a murder for 20 years, but his prosecutors has been responsible for Italy's most controversial murder case. The city had reportedly not had a murder for 20 years. However, the prosecutors were responsible for Italy's most controversial murder cases. Now, that, that already right there is all bad. But, I mean, as someone going to go visit out of the country, seeing how people, how, how the judicial, judicial system handles their, their murder trials and their cases, it, it's, not, it's not something that you Google because, number one, I mean, most people don't plan on committing a murder in another country, right? Right. I mean, I, I, whenever I go back to the motherland in Mexico, which I haven't been in so many years, I never, I never looked into how Mexicans, uh, the, the Mexican government handles murder cases in that country because I'm not going to go kill someone in Mexico. Number one, I know better. And number two, I know better, right? <laughs> A charge originated by Perugia prosecutors resulted in the 2000 conviction, 2002 conviction of former Prime Minister Guido Andrade for ordering the murder of journalist Carmine Piccaroli and led to complaints that the justice system had gone mad. The Supreme Court took the unusual step of definitively acquitting Andrade the next year. So according from what I read, I just again I just I threw this in there to get you a little a little something extra on what is to come regarding the handling of the Amanda Knox case. So apparently in 2002, the former prime minister Giulio and Andrade was convicted for putting a hit out on Carmine Piccaroli. From what I from what I read is that there was in, undisputable evidence showing that the minister, the former prime minister, one hundred percent ordered the hit on the journalist. One, I mean, there was no doubt. Everything everything was going to be a slam dunk case, but then. Was def- then, but then the former prime minister was definitively acquitted the following year in 2003. Now, if that doesn't already start raising questions on why, how, who, what, when, and where, hmm, right there already. I mean, when I started reading this and started getting into this into this uh, this case, I, I started scratching my head already when I read that. It just it just doesn't make any sense to me. In early 2002. Perjua prosecutor Giuliano Mergioni Magini, Mig, yeah, Mig, <laughs> who enjoyed taking a detective-like role and was later to be charged to be in charge of the Kircher investigation, arraigned members of a respectable Masonic lodge for an alleged conspiracy. Magini reportedly based the case on a theory involving serial killers and satanic rites. Now, one thing that I do have to throw out there is I'm pretty sure that Italy is one of the the biggest catholic dominated countries in in Europe. I mean, we already know that that Catholicism is it has a huge hand over several countries, but I believe that Italy is one of the biggest countries. I mean, hell, the Vatican is in Italy. So, 
what makes you think that the Catholic influence isn't going to be heavy when it comes to investigating crimes and other such occurrences of an illegal sort? You know what I mean? So according to this person, uh, Magini reportedly based the case on a theory involving serial killings and satanic rites. So meaning that the Masonic Lodge was was convicted and arraigned just based off a theory regarding serial killings and satanic rites. There was no indisputable evidence that serial killings or satanic rituals of any sort were involved in the Lodge. So, I mean... I get. I, I'm pretty sure corruption lasts. I mean, corruption has has its place in things all over the world in all uh, branches of of government. But then you said, I mean, at one at some at one point in time, you really have to understand, or you have to scratch your head and wonder, how far do people let it go before things are are changed. But then one of the things that always pop in my head when I think about that stuff is that if you don't see the corruption, how do you know there's corruption? If you're convinced that that's just the way things run, you're not going to change anything or fight for something different. You know what I mean? It just doesn't make any sense for you to change something that you don't see needs to be changed. McGinney investigated fellow prosecutors for complicity in the supposed plot and appealed dismissals of the charges. There were no convictions in the case, which finally ended in 2010. According to a scholar who researched comparative law in Italy, selective changes to the Italian legal system left it unable to cope when a prosecutor with Magini's American-style adversarial approach used his powers to the fullest. So when you have somebody just raw dog balls out, the Italian law didn't, the Italian law didn't really know how to handle such prosecutions. So instead of trying to fix it and adjust it, they're just going to let it ride. Say, oh, I don't know. Let, let's, uh, let's, let's turn, let's turn the blind eye. In Perjua, in Pergua, Knox lived in a four bedroom ground floor apartment at Via della Pergola. Seven, seven with, at the, oh, <laughs> ground floor apartment at Via della Pergola seven with three other women. Her flatmates were Kircher, a British exchange student, and two Italian trainee lawyers in their late 20s. Kircher and Knox moved in on September 10th and 20, 2007, respectively meeting each other for the first time. Knox was employed part-time at a bar, La Chic, which was owned by by a Congolese man, Daya Patrick Lumumba. She told flatmates that she was going to quit because he was not paying her. Lumumba denied this. Kircher's English female friend saw relatively little of Knox who preferred to socialize with Italians. Well, who the fuck does it matter who she socializes with? It doesn't matter if it was Italians, Americans, fucking dogs, roaches. It, does, it doesn't matter who she hangs out with. What does, what does it matter? It's stupid. That's so point, stu- it, was, it was a pointless piece of information that just didn't need to be thrown in there. It's just dumb. The walkout semi-basement apartment of the building was rented by young Italian men with whom both Kircher and Knox were friendly. One, Giacomo Salinzi, spent time in the girl's flat due to a shared interest in music. Returning home at 2 a.m. one night in mid-October, Knox, Kircher, Salinzi, and other basement and another basement resident met at met a basketball court acquaintance of the Italians, Rudy Guid. I think it's Guid. Guidi. G-U-E-D-E. Guid. We're just going to call him Guid. That sounds right. Guid attached himself to the group and asked about Knox. He was invited into the basement by the Italians. Knox and then the Kircher came down to join them. At 4.30 a.m., Kircher left saying she was going to bed and Knox followed her out. Guid spent the night, the rest of the night, in the basement. All right, so they met a fellow out in basketball courts. It doesn't matter, you know, fuck it. People meet each other all the time. Knox recalled a second night out with Kircher and Salinci in which Guid joined them and was and was allowed into the basement. He was never invited into the women's apartment. Well, that makes sense. You don't want somebody you don't know inside of an apartment full of women. Three, three weeks later before her death, Kircher went with Knox to the Euro Chocolate Festival. On October 20th, Kircher became romantically involved with Salinzi after going to a nightclub with him as part of a small group that included Knox. Okay. So far, I don't see anything suspicious. I mean, there isn't really any major plot. We, we just know that right now, 
everyone's still getting to know each other. They're still getting to, they're still being able to hang out and trying to figure out what's what and what, what people like to do. Guid visited the basement later that day. On October 25th, Kircher and Knox went to a concert where Knox met Rafaeli Solicito, a 23-year-old software engineer student. She began spending her time at his flat, a five-minute walk from Via della Pergola 7. Uh-oh, doom-doom. Uh-oh, doom-doom. Oh, no. A body is discovered. Damn, already, huh? November 1st was a public holiday, and the Italians living in the building were away. It is believed that after watching a movie at some friend's house, Kircher returned home around 9 p.m. that evening and was alone in the building. Just after midday on November 2nd, Knox called Kircher's English phone. So apparently when I was reading this, when they referred to her English phone... It was her cell phone that she that she brought from her from England. And instead of giving out the Italian number that she was staying at at the time, people just called her like her her close family and friends from England would just call her for on her on her on her English phone. I'm not sure why that was, maybe because there was, you know, three other women living inside of the apartment or four other women living inside the apartment that you didn't want to type the phone lines for a long time. So hey, let's just keep my my cell phone and we'll just keep doing it this way. So Knox, I'm, I'm, but again, I'm not sure why Knox would have called her English phone. Kircher kept the phone in her jeans and could always be reached on it. The call was not answered. The call was not answered. Knox then called Filomena Romanelli, one of the two Italian trainee lawyers she, she and Kircher shared the apartment with, and in a mixture of Italian and English, said she was worried something had happened to Kircher. As on going to the via... As on going to the Via della Pergola 7 apartment earlier that morning, Knox had noticed an open front door, bloodstains, including a footprint in the bathroom, and Kircher's bedroom door locked. So when you come back from, from wherever you're at, and then all of a sudden you see the front door was open, bloodstains, including a bloody footprint in the bathroom, and then one of your roommate's doors are locked. And if she's not very well known, or if she isn't, if, if it's not her natural habit to keep the door locked, I mean, I would raise I would raise suspicion immediately, but that's just me. Knox and Solicito then went to the Via de la Porgola 7, and on getting no answer from Kircher, unsuccessfully tried to break in the bedroom door, leaving it noticeably damaged. At 1240 cents. At 12.47 p.m., Knox called her mother and was told to contact the police as an emergency. Why would you contact, the, why would you contact your mom and not the police? Why, why wouldn't contacting the police be your number one thing? I mean, you live in America, and you know very well, right out the gate, one of the most important things is, hey, call 911 immediately. You don't just walk around, you know, and, and lollygag and make seven different phone calls to people. I mean, she didn't, she didn't make seven different phone calls, but you know what I mean. She, she, instead of calling for law enforcement ASAP, ASAP Rockies, she went ahead and called her mother to find out what to do. I understand, you know, you're panicked, you're, you're, you're confused, there's certain things that, that, you're, that you're not sure about. But all in all, the one thing you want to do is make sure you let law enforcement know immediately. So Lacido called the Carabinieri, the Carabinieri, one of Italy's national police forces, getting through at 12.51 p.m., he was recorded telling them there had been a break-in with nothing taken, and the emergency was that Kircher's door was locked. She was not answering calls to her phone, and there were bloodstains. Police, telecom- police tele- telecommunications investigators arrived to inquire about an abandoned phone, which was in fact Kircher's Italian unit. Romanelli arrived and took over, explaining the situation to the police, who were informed about Kircher's English phone, which had been handed in as a result of its ringing when Knox called it. Romanelli arrived and took over, explaining the situation to the police who were informed about Kircher's English phone, which had been handed in as a result of its ringing when Knox called it. So the police were investigated, were were already on the case for a different situation from what I was reading. It, It sounds like, Police telecommunications were investigating an abandoned phone, which was Kircher's Italian phone. Because she had two phones, one for the Brits and one for the Italians. And apparently her Italian unit was missing. However, 
when the second phone was found, it was handed over to whoever was investigating because uh, Amanda Knox was calling on that phone coincidentally. Hmm. On discovering Kircher's English phone had been found dumped, Romanelli demanded that the policemen force Kircher's bedroom door open, but they did not think the circumstances warranted damaging private property. The door was then kicked in by a friend of Romanelli, and Kircher's body was discovered on the floor. She had been stabbed and died from exonuation due to neck wounds. Now, for those of you who don't know what exonuation is, it is a loss of blood through an open wound source. It just you get drained from your blood from a wound. That's just a fancy way of someone saying she bled out. That, that's 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 all it was. But what I'm curious to know is what kind of rules and laws do Italian do, does does Italy have where one of the the person who it was in charge of the the investigation, which was Romanelli, refused to kick open the door because they didn't want to damage private property. Like, goddamn, what? I mean, what kind of laws where it says, "Yo, you break my door without reasonable cause, and I'm going to sue you." Here in America, the cops just kick your shit in and be like, "Oops, my bad." You know, it just doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense why they would delay the the opening of a door with I mean I, I in my opinion you already have reasonable cause to find out why is this door open both her phones were dumped and missing I'm sorry her her both of her phones were found not to be in her in her person or on her person her bedroom door is locked and there was blood in the in the flat when they walked in that doesn't warrant enough for reasonable doubt or reasonable cause to bust open the door to find out if the person is alive or bound up or, you know, in this case, dead. Again, I, I don't know much of Italy's laws. I mean, I'm not, I didn't fact check what Italy's laws were. I'm going to be guilty of that, but it just, I mean, it's just crazy to me. So what, let's, let's get into the investigation. The first detectives on the scene were Monica Napoloni, Napoloni and her superior, Marco Chicachira. <laughs> well, Chica Chica. Chicharira. Napoloni conducted Napoleone conducted the initial interviews and quizzed Knox about her failure to immediately raise the alarm, which was later widely seen as an anomalous feature of Knox's behavior. So just to comment on that, and I, I again, I apologize for sounding like I was doing a remix with uh, Chichaira, but one of the big things that were questioned during this entire interview was the weird and odd behavior during the entire investigation and trial period that, that Knox was conducting. There were several different reports that, that Amanda Knox just behaved bizarrely with, with a lot of different things that during... During a lot of different processes of the investigation, which a lot of people said it was guilt and it was it was nervousness. It was, you know, this and that you have you have people arguing for her. You have people arguing against her. So, you know, again, watch several of her interviews. Just just look at the way she conducts herself. I mean, I, I found some of the things that she was saying off putting and kind of bizarre on the expl- explanation and, and her emotion towards everything that happened. However, at the same time, I can understand if you're just a rock solid person and you, you, you just have this, you know, hey, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to show emotion because that's just not who I am. You know, I, I, so I can understand both sides of the coin, kind of. According to Knox, Napoloni was hostile to her from the outset. Chicharia discounted the signs of a break in deeming them clearly faked by the killer. So at this point, one of the detectives said, yo, this was not an outside job. This was done this was an inside job. This was done by someone who was in this room. Boom, boom. Now. But who was it? When you already have a detective determine that a break-in was faked, what left, what, what's there, what is there left to try to prove or argue? I mean, as, as, the, as the suspect in this case, or the accused, of course, you're going to try to do everything you can in order to prove your innocence. But when a detective flat out says, yo, this was faked, what, what do you do? 
I mean, I, I don't I don't see people doing much. Let's continue. The police were not told the extent of Kirchler's relationship with Salenzi in initial interviews. On November 4th, the same day Chicharria was quoted as saying that someone known to Kircher and let into the building by her might be responsible for her murder. Guidi is believed to have left Pergua, per, Perugia. Remember, Guidi was the was the new friend, was the new, was the new, the newcomer to the clique. He he was the one that, that they met at the basketball court, which kind of just stayed. You know, under wraps, kind of under the under the radar for some reason. But oddly and suspiciously, he left Italy to head out of the country. Now, mind you, this is Europe where you can literally jump four or five times and you're in a different country. You know what I mean? I mean, Europe is is super small. You know, I'm, I'm exaggerating. You don't jump four or five times. It's more like eight or nine times. And then you're in a different country. So this guy, Guidi or Guida, being able to leave Italy in a drop of a hat is not far-fetched at all. But why would he leave? Why would he just pick up and go to a different country? Yeah, your guess is as good as mine. I don't know. So who was arrested? Someone, someone was arrested, obviously. If not, then I wouldn't be doing this episode, right? Right. Over the following days, Knox was repeatedly interviewed ostensibly as someone who might become a witness. She told police that on November 1st, she received a text from Lumumba advising that her evening waitressing shift had been canceled and she had stayed. And so she had stayed over at Solicito's apartment, only going back to the apartment she shared with Kircher on the morning the body was discovered. So for those of you who have significant other boo-boos who are like, oh, I love you, boo. I love you more, boo. It's not, it's not uncommon or it's not unnatural or odd when someone says, yo, I need to go to work. If not, I would spend my forever with you. You and me and me and you be so happy together, but I got to go to work. Peace. And then for, for the, for Knox's shift to be canceled, you know, Hey, guess what, boo? I get to spend my, the rest of my day with you. My shift was canceled, so I'm just going to come kick it here with you. See, that's not bizarre. And then for Knox to return the next morning, the next morning she could have went and grabbed her. She would. She could have went to back to her her flat to grab a change of clothes. I mean, she just came off of work, went probably went straight to to her boyfriend's apartment or her boyfriend's flat and decided to chill there. It, you know, it's not out of the ordinary. Knox was not provided with legal counsel as Italian law only mandates the appointment of a lawyer for someone suspected of a crime. So from my understanding and from several interviews that I had watched with Amanda Knox, according to her, she was the entire time up until she was told that she's, she was going to be, that she was officially arrested. The entire time that she was interrogated, she was under the assumption that she was only there as a witness to what she, what was discovered and what, the events she she happened upon relay, uh, leading up to the notification of law enforcement. So not at not at one not at any point in time did Knox believe that she was a suspect. The entire time she was convinced that she was only a witness. So therefore, I believe in my unprofessional opinion that that was Italy's way of being able to. And not investigate, but uh, what is that word called? Um, interrogate Amanda Knox to the fullest without the interference of a lawyer. Again, this is my unprofessional opinion. I am not no way even close to being convinced that I know anything about any sort of law. Hell, I barely know the laws here in the States let alone the laws in another country. I, I don't even watch CSI. I, I mean, I used to watch Matlock when I was a kid and Murder, She Wrote. I don't know if that if I can carry that over into today's episode, but I was down with, with some Matlock. You know, me and him, we had a good thing going. On the night of November 5th, Knox voluntarily went to the police station, although what followed is a matter of dispute. Police arrested Knox, Salicito, and Patrick Lumumba on November 6, 2007. Charges against Lumumba were dropped a short time later, but not the rest of the people who were picked up in the process. Huh. 
After her trial, Knox testified that she had spent hours maintaining her original story, that she had been with Solicito at his flat all night and had no knowledge of the murder. But a group of police would not believe her. So according to reports, according to, to her reports, to Amanda Knox and words that came directly out of her mouth, were that the entire time she maintained the same exact story, the same exact events that transpired, the same exact everything from day in, day out, day in, day out. She was repeatedly told that she's lying and she needs to remember more than what she's remembering because she is not telling the truth. According to Amanda Knox, the Italian prosecutor and the people who's interrogating her were no holds bars, flat out calling her a, a pretty much, I mean, a, a fucking liar. So, you know, there's some cases where, let, let me read this. Knox said, quote, I was just stressed and pressured. I was manipulated, end quote. So when, when I read that, I, I decided to do a little digging on, on, my, on my, friendly, my friendly aquatic friend, DuckDuckGo. And there are several cases where innocent people have been found guilty because they quote, you know, or they supposedly folded under pressure. But then later on, the whole entire trial was thrown out because of fear, intimidation and wanting to wanting the abuse and torture to stop. They would just comply and agree to whatever the 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 torturer was was telling them to admit to to admit guilt, even though they're innocent. They just wanted everything to stop. So because they, they couldn't handle it anymore. They would agree and admit to things that they never, they never done. So according to Amanda Knox, this was one of those cases where she said again, quote, I was just stressed and pressured. I was manipulated in quote. Amanda Knox testified to being told by the interpreter, quote, probably I didn't remember well because I was traumatized. So I should try to remember something else End quote. When your own interpreter is telling you that that you should try to remember something else because you were traumatized, I don't think that's probably the best advice from an interpreter. The interpreter, from my understanding, should just shut up and interpret exactly what the fuck they're, to- they're telling me and what I'm telling them. Right? Right. You don't give me advice on what I, sh- I should do. That's, that you're, you're, that's way above your, your involvement. Boy or girly. Knox also stated, quote, saying, saying, quote, they said they were convinced that I was protecting someone. They were saying, who is it? Who is it? They were saying, here's the message on your telephone. You wanted to meet up with him. You are a stupid liar, end quote. Knox also said that a police policewoman said, quote, we're saying, was, was quoted saying, was saying, come on, come on, remember, and then slap, she hit me. Then come on, come on, and slap another one. She straight DJ Khaled her and another one. And another one. <laughs> That's a bad joke. I'm sorry. My bad. My bad. So when, when you're being physically assaulted and accused of something repeatedly, now according to Amanda Knox, she, was spent, she spent several hours, I think it was like 50 hours in a span of three or four days in the police interrogation room. When... When she finally had enough, that's when she admitted, yo, okay, I did it. This, this is exactly what I remember, and this is what happened. Although, according to her, were complete lies just for the fact that she wanted everything to end and stop being interrogated in the manner that she was being interrogated. Knox said she had requested a lawyer but was told it would make things worse for her and that she would go to jail for 30 years. She also said she was not allowed to act. She was not allowed access to food, water, or the bathroom. Now that 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 is an ethical rule violation here in America. I don't know about other countries, but I would assume being you know not anything involved in in human rights or law that that is just a basic human right. I mean, even if you even if the even if the suspect is escorted to the restroom. Even if the suspect is given a little thimble full of, you know, water, the fact is that they do have access to such basic needs. But according 
to someone else, Fikara, the policewoman, Lorena, Lorena Zugarini, testified that during the interview, Knox was given access to food, water, hot drinks, and the, and the lavatory, lavor, lavoratory, lavatory. I don't know. I was trying to fancy it up dirt. Don't. They further said Knox was asked about a lawyer, but did not have one. Was not hit. She was Knox was not hit at any time and interviewed and was interviewed firmly but politely. You really think that law enforcement is actually going to admit? Oh yeah, I beat the shit out of her. I roughed her ass up. I gave her. I busted her up seven ways from Sunday. Made sure that she had tickets to the gun show. Busted her in her nose and told her, "Yo, now tell me something." Of course, they're not going to tell you. They're not going to. The law enforcement that roughed up the suspect isn't going to admit. To anything, so I mean, you, you can you can testify that that wasn't that no mistreatment occurred during the interrogation of Amanda Knox. All you want, a lot of people just aren't going to believe you. Under pressure, under pressure, Knox falsely stated that she had been home when Kircher was killed and that she thought the murderer was Lamumba, who Knox knew had been serving customers at his bar all that night. Knox, Solicito, and Lumamba were taken into custody and charged with the murder. Her first meeting with her legal counsel was on November 11th. So she was arrest- arrested on, when did this happen? This, this all occurred November 6th. And so what, like five days after when she was finally given counsel on November 11th? That, that, seem, that seems a little bizarre, if you ask me. But hey, again, I don't know the laws and I don't know the regulations. I'm just reading what, what was reported. Chicharito, who thought the arrests were premature, dropped out of the investigation soon afterward, leaving Napoleone in charge of a major investigation for the first time in her career. No pressure. Absolutely no pressure, right? Customers who Lumumba had been serving at his bar on the night of the murder gave him a, a complete alibi. After his bloodstained fingerprints were found on bedding under Kircher's body, Guid, who had fled Germany, was extradited back to Italy. So I am not the best detective in the world. As you know, as evidence from my previous episodes when I tried to pinpoint exactly what happened on, on big cases that I've covered. So again, I'm not I'm not a learned man. All I have is a GED, you know, a GED, a good enough diploma under my belt. But if bloodstained fingerprints were found on bedding under Kircher's body, wouldn't that kind of eliminate the accusations towards Amanda Knox and her boyfriend just a little bit? Again, that that's not. I'm I'm not. I I don't know for sure, but in my unprofessional opinion, I would think that that would kind of absolve Knox and her boyfriend if the fingerprints. If the bloody fingerprints of another human being were found, but nobody else's were found, I mean, I might be, I might be, you know, talking, speaking wild on the yard right now, but I, I don't know. Guidi, Knox, and Solicito were then charged with committing the murder together. On November 30th, a panel of three judges endorsed the charges and ordered Knox and Solicito held in detention pending a trial. So now we have a three-way murder. Now we have a three-way right here. We have a menage a trois. Oh wait, that's not Italian. That's that's French. Never mind. Let me cancel that joke out. Let, let me let me excuse me. Let me let me erase that one. So now Guidi Knox and and Solicito, which is Amanda Knox's boyfriend, were now charged for committing a murder together. So they conspired to kill Kircher. But why? Why would anybody want to kill the British gal when they, you know obviously they were out doing their own thing and not really entertained with Kircher. Let's see if we can find out. In a formal interview with Magini, Knox said that she had been brainwashed by police interrogators into accusing Lamumba and implicating herself. Again, that's, that is not an unusual thing. People have been convinced, brainwashed, and feared, fear-mongered into giving false confessions and sell and false self accusations in order to make the tormenting and and torture stop, so they can not be treated anything less than 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 a human being. You know what I mean? Knox became the subject of unprecedented pretrial media coverage, drawing an unattributed leaks from the prosecution, including a best selling Italian book whose author Im- imagined 
imagined or invented incidents that were purported (laughs) to have occurred in Knox's private life. What does it matter what happens in Knox's private life? She's never been accused of murder in her entire life. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. One of the things that, that drives me up the fucking wall with this case when I was reading about it was that they brought in her promiscuous life on, on because she had a handle back. I can't remember if it was MySpace or Facebook. I don't know which one it was at, but it was Foxy Noxy. And so people thought that she was like the biggest slut and a whore and she, all she wanted to do was bang around dudes. You know, it doesn't matter if she does it or if she doesn't. How many of them did she kill? Zero, right? Right. So what does, what does it matter what happened in Knox's private life? It, it just, the media is such, is so fucking toxic. You don't know the truth. They just want to spin everything for likes and for their own, for their own viewing ratings. That's all they want. You know, there's the, the you know, the, the whole, uh, cancel culture. Let's cancel the fucking media. Let, let's start doing stuff on our own. Why do we need the media to spin it, to help convince people one way or the other, and then end up having complete wrong accusations? I'll give you I'll give you a good example for those of you who are in America and maybe for those of you who have been following the the issue that's been occurring here on the Texas border. There's been, you know, several thousand Haitians coming in illegally from from Mexico. You know, they 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 chartered a boat or they they coyoted a boat from from Haiti over to Central America and and migrated towards the the southern part of Texas in order, you know, in hopes to cross over here into the states. That's not uncommon. That is not outrageous. However, with the amount of people that were crossing, obviously Border Patrol is going to do their job because that is what Border Patrol does. You know, you want to you want to stop people from showing up illegally. Yes, I know people still get by. I'm not arguing that. You know, I, I I'm not. But what, what I'm, my point is here about the media spinning things is that there's a picture that is surfing that's that's surfacing on the internet right now. It's going all over the internet from every corner of the internet, every circle, every, every possible point of the internet where there's a, there's a group of Haitian uh, individuals. I'm not sure. I I believe they're males, but they're running through the Rio Grande. And one of the law enforcement agents, one of the law enforcement agents is on horseback with his reins with the reins in his hands. But you can clearly see the video showing that the the border patrol agent has a hold of the of the immigrant's hand, uh, arm with his hand, but the title is saying "Border Patrol Whipping uh, Haitian Immigrants." How despicable! They're not whipping anybody. They're, they're, I mean, you can you can visibly see every single picture that was taken by whoever took the picture. Never it never showed. The border patrol agents whipping anyone. Those were fucking reins. But my point of the story, my point of this rant is that the, 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 everybody wanted to cancel the border patrol. Let's cancel the media for bringing, for making malicious fucking lies about things that aren't true. And in this case, Amanda Knox, from what I was reading, because of the of the media's negative reports and and and, and interest into this into Amanda Knox, it made it even more difficult for her to prove her innocence. I went off on the whole left field of a tangent that I had to bring back on a far end curve just so I can make my point. <laughs> Let's continue. The trial has started. Guidi fled to Germany shortly after the murder. During a November 19th, 2000 Skype conversation with his friend Giacomo Benaditi, Guidi did not mention Knox or Celestino as being in the building on the night of the murder. Let me reread that for the people in the back. November 19th, 2007, Skype conversation with his friend Giacomo Benaditi. Guidi did not mention Knox or Solicito as being in the building on the night of the murder. Later, Guidi's account changed and he indirectly implicated them in the murder, which he denied involvement in. So November 19th, 2007, a Skype conversation, he, he didn't say anything about Knox or Solicito being inside of the building. However, later on, he changed his mind and said, oh, I mean, I'm not directly saying that they were there, but I'm not saying they weren't there. But then he's all, yo, I was innocent, although my bloody fingerprints were on bedding under the victim. But I wasn't involved, though. It was, I mean, if, according from what it sounds like, is Guidi straight doing a shaggy right now? It wasn't me. Although there's all this evidence pointing, you know, he had his bloody fingerprints underneath the bedding, on the bedding underneath the victim. Boy, I tell you, 
Guidi was arrested in Germany on November 20th and extradited to Italy on December 6th. Guidi opted to be tried in a special fast-track procedure by Judge McKilly. He was not charged with having a knife. He did not testify and was not questioned about his statements, which had altered from his original version. His original version. Why wasn't he questioned about, about his change of mind? That, I mean, it, it, me as a prosecutor or me as a judge, that would, probably would have been one of the first things I would have questioned and asked. You know, it's like, yo, why did you change your mind all of a sudden if originally you said this and now you're saying that? What changed and what what made you change? Why, you know, why? Who, what, when, where, and why? But none of that was even questioned. Apparently, he, he wasn't even he wasn't even interrogated as intensely as Amanda Knox was. Uh, allegedly, again, I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm just going off of what reports I have to read. Guidi was convicted of murder, but the official judge's report on the conviction specified that he had not had a knife or stabbed the victim or stolen any of Kircher's possession. McKinley's finding that Guidi must have had an accomplice gave support to the later prosecution of, of Knox. So now Guidi did this that Knox is the, Guidi was found guilty for the murder. Okay, cool. But at the same time, Knox was now the accomplice. Knox is the one who helped him murder Kircher. Boy, I tell you, show me the evidence. What evidence? Where's Matlock? Give my suit. Give my light blue suit right now. The judges reason that Guidi would not have faked a burglary because it would have pointed to him in view of his own earlier break-ins. Though at the time of the murder, he was known to police only for being detained for trespassing in Florence. According to reports from what I read on to capitalize on that or to add more to that statement was that Guidi was had multiple convictions of breaking and entering. He also had a couple convictions of assault as well. But none of that was brought up nor held against him during the trial at any point in time. However, they found him guilty but didn't convict him of of robbing or 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 messing with anything. But yet pointed to Amanda Knox saying she was the one who, who was the accomplice and assisted him in the murder of Kircher. Although there are several, several convictions of Guidi who was breaking and entering again and, uh, and of assault where Amanda Knox, even in the States had zero run-ins with the law. Now, am I saying that because you never had a run in the law? Are you 100% innocent? Absolutely not. People do weird things at, at different stages of their life. And I'm not saying that murdering is weird. It's just not a typical thing that people do when they hit at a certain age. Especially Knox being so young. She was in her early 20s. Most people in their early 20s in another country wants to, you know, they, they, they want to go wild and, and have, uh, have uh, uh, premarital sex and get fucked up on, on the wine and the booze and, and enjoy the nightlife, not go out and murder someone. I don't think that's on the top 20 list of what to do in my 20s. Let's continue. Despite Guidi saying that Kircher had left him, let him in through the entry door, the judges decided against the possibility of Guidi's, Guidi's have gotten in by simply knocking on the door because they thought Kircher would not have opened the cottage door to him, although she knew he was an acquaintance of her boyfriend, Giacomo Salinzi. Wait a minute. So, Guidi just said that Kircher let him in through the front door. The judges said, no, that can't be possible, because Kircher wouldn't let Guidi, who was a friend of her boyfriend, to just come in. That, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, Europe is one of them is, uh, uh, you know, allegedly Italy and, and several parts of Europe are some of the most friendliest countries. So if you know someone you are that if a friend is, a, is if you're dating someone and one of their friends comes to visit you, you, uh, you know, allegedly, I don't know how, how accurate this is. You invite them in for an espresso and, and a cannoli. You know what I mean? You don't just leave them out in the cold, and say, oh, no, fuck off. You know, that, that's what we do here in America. So, no, it is not out of the ordinary. It's not bizarre that. Kircher let him in just by Guidi knocking on the door. Boy, I tell you. In his original account, Guidi said that the Kircher's con- confrontation with the killer had started at the entry door. One legal commentator on the case thought that, in- thought that insufficient consideration had been given to the possibility that Guidi had called at the house on some pretext while Kircher was alone there. Murdered after her... Sh- murdered murdered her after she opened the door to him and faked a burglary to cover his tracks. Now that sounds more realistic. That sounds like something that 100% more than likely happened. 
In his original account, Gwitty said that Kircher's confrontation with her killer had started at the entry door. One legal commentator said, yo, maybe you're not giving enough consideration that Gwitty had phoned Kircher wondering if she was alone and then went over there and killed her while she was alone so there wouldn't be any, any evidence that he was there killing her and then covered up his tracks, making it seem like there was a break-in. But the judge is going to say, no, absolutely not. That's not possible. That, see, it, it, one of the biggest things why I did this, this, this uh, Amanda Knox uh, episode today was that uh, there's a lot of inconsistencies, a lot of things that scratched my head, even my head, which I'm not familiar with a lot of law enforcement mumbo jumbo or jargon. I just know that it's something that, that made me confused and, and scratch my head over, over the time. It, it just did something. I, I just, so I just had to do, I just had to do this, this episode just to make, just, just to see what, what I thought about it. Let's continue. In October 2008, Guidi was found guilty of the sexual assault and murder of Kircher and sentenced to 30 years imprisonment. His prison sentence was ultimately reduced to 16 years. He was later given an early release date in December 2020 and authorized to finish his sentence with community service. Amanda Knox was dissatisfied with his early release and spoke public, publicly against it. What is up with all these people in other countries, even our own country, getting, get, getting found guilty given this crazy amount of time but then shit is reduced and they're off early for good behavior or whatever the case may be like in this case Guidi was found guilty of the sexual assault and murder of Kircher sentenced to 30 years which in my opinion is not even close to the amount of years that this dude should have spent this dude should have spent in life in prison if not capital punishment you know boom bang boom you're found guilty without a reasonable doubt so from 30 years his sentence was cut almost in half to only 16 years, but then also was given a later early release date in 2020. So, why? That doesn't that doesn't make any sense to me. I, I don't I, I don't understand. So this dude, if he would have served his entire time, he would have been eligible for for release in 2037 because this happened around 2007. Oh no, sorry, 2008. So that's 2038 that Guidi would have been released from prison. But his prison sentence was ultimately reduced to 16 years and then was later given early release in December 2020? Oh, I'd be pissed. Yeah, I, I, I would be just as pissed as, as Amanda Knox would be. So we're going to stop the episode right here. We're at, we're at just over, just close to an hour. Uh, so I'm going to release, I'm going to stop here. We still have a few more topics or a few more highlights, bullet points to go over. That will be in part two of the Amanda Knox trial. So thank you very much for listening. And I have a little special treat. So don't sign off early. Listen to everything, even when the credits roll out. Just listen to the entire thing until it says finished. I have a little special treat for everybody. Thank you, everyone. And stay tuned for part two. I appreciate everybody. Thank you. Oh, don't forget. Good morning. Good day. Good night. Goodbye. There are many reasons why Amanda Knox was considered a suspect early in Meredith Kircher's murder case. Some of her behavior during the investigation can only be described as strange. For example, Italian police officer Giacinto Provazio claimed Knox allegedly did gymnastics after being questioned by investigators. He testified, I was also told that she did the splits and the cartwheel in one of the rooms at the station. Then later, after being questioned all night, she burst into tears. Knox admits to some of the odd interrogation room exercises, but told Diane Sawyer for ABC News that she was, quote, just stretching. Knox said, As far as cartwheels or splits, I never did a cartwheel. Um, I did do the splits. I did the splits. And that's once. When Sawyer asked if Knox could understand why that choice was strange to people, Knox replied, What's strange is why these things got mischaracterized. Doing splits in a police station does not make Knox a murderer, but it did make many people scratch their heads. Amanda Knox's behavior at the police station involved more than just doing splits. It was reported that she sat on her then-boyfriend Raffaele Solicito's lap at one point and that they were inappropriately affectionate until a police officer intervened. 
Knox was apparently also famished in the immediate aftermath of her roommate's murder, at least according to her diary, which was supposedly excerpted by Italian journalist Fiorenza Sarzanini. In her book, Amanda and the Others, Sarzanini quoted the following passage from Knox's personal journal, which includes another bizarrely callous-sounding attempt at humor. I'm dying of hunger. I really want to say that I could murder a pizza, but that doesn't seem right. There was also an infamous video of Knox and Solicito kissing, just feet from her house, which was a crime scene at the time. The couple kisses quickly three times, and then Knox appears downtrodden afterwards. Knox told Diane Sawyer she was just staring off thinking about fate. She said, My friend had been murdered, and it could have just as easily been me. The reports of PDA in front of police only further perpetuated the salacious media portrait of Knox, described by NBC News as, quote, a sexual aggressor, a femme fatale. Testifying in court during Amanda Knox's trial, Meredith Kircher's friend Robin Butterworth said, While I was there, I found Amanda's behavior very strange. She had no emotion while everyone else was upset. While it may seem unfair to judge Knox's behavior in the immediate aftermath of a traumatic event, her actions did have an effect on others who were also grieving the loss of Kircher. When a friend commented that they hoped Kircher did not suffer while dying, Knox was quoted as responding, How could she not? She got her throat slit. When confronted by Diane Sawyer about the remark, Knox admitted to regretting the comment, saying, I wish I could have been more mature about it, yeah. Between the trauma of the loss and the ordeal of being accused of the crime, Knox reportedly felt disconnected from her friends almost immediately after Meredith's death, and for years afterwards. Many observers were confused by Amanda Knox's cavalier attitude toward her trial, particularly in the way that she dressed. During a Valentine's Day 2009 appearance, she wore jeans and a t-shirt displaying the song title All You Need Is Love. Knox explained her wardrobe choice to ABC News, saying, I didn't realize how very intensely I was being scrutinized. The Seattle Times also compared Knox's courtroom behavior to that of her ex-boyfriend, Raffaele Solicito, noting Knox's calm demeanor. Solicito, on the other hand, was said to have appeared more tense and kept a lower profile. He faces the cameras only when briefly waving to his family sitting in front of them. While Knox may write off her perceived flippancy to be youthfully aloof, criminologist Severio Fortunato told the Seattle Times there could be an explanation for Knox's behavior. It could be a sign of malaise and confusion. Facing the wounds of a trial can push you to adopt a certain behavior to fight off the fear, which can be interpreted from the outside as inappropriate. Amanda Knox admitted to acting strangely throughout the murder investigation in her 2013 book, Waiting to be Heard, in which she describes her awkwardness while accompanying Italian authorities to the crime scene. Knox wrote that, I sang out ta-da and thrust up my arms like the lead in a musical, a gesture meant to ease the tension for myself, because this was so surreal and terrifying. Knox was 21 at the time of Kircher's murder, and her youth has often been cited as a reason for her unusual behavior and coping mechanisms. Amanda Knox's first interview after being released from prison was with Diane Sawyer for ABC News. The eyes of the country were watching. Body language and communications expert Vanessa Van Edwards analyzed Knox's body language in a blog post, revealing what she called, quote, red flags and indicating that Knox's body language did not match her verbal answers. For example, Van Edwards noted that Knox verbally answers no, but affirmatively nods when asked if she was in her home on the night of Meredith Kircher's murder. Van Edwards also noted possibly deceptive behavior when Knox pauses and deeply swallows when asked, Do you know anything else you have not told police that you have not said in this book? Van Edwards pointed out that Knox's words don't match her facial expressions all the time. When she says, It could very well have been me, meaning she could have been murdered instead of Kircher, her face is seemingly stoic, leading the expert to again point out how her words didn't align with her body language, which could indicate guilt. Amanda Knox's Diane Sawyer interview for ABC News may have raised red flags for some people, but it's not Knox's only interview to raise eyebrows. Knox appeared on The Ray Darcy Show in Ireland in 2018, where she compared her experience in Italy to the plight of the Irish people. She said, Oh my God, letters from lots of Irish people who really understood, like, of course, authority taking advantage of a vulnerable person and spinning it in a bad way, of course. She went on to say that Irish fans had sent her rousing Irish songs in solidarity. She then proceeded to sing the lyrics. Darcy called Knox's singing, the oddest thing I've ever witnessed. Eight years after being exonerated of Meredith Kircher's murder, Amanda Knox traveled to Italy to participate in an event for the Italy Innocence Project, a nonprofit focused on wrongful convictions. In addition to the crush of news coverage of Knox's return abroad, Knox promoted it herself. In a media essay, Knox revealed, I will speak about wrongful convictions and trial by media. On social media, she posted a photo of her pretending to hang from a cliff and captioned it, Three days till I returned to Italy for the first time since leaving prison. Feeling frayed, so I made my own inspirational workplace poster. Hang in there. Just imagine I'm a kitten. The Kircher family wasn't impressed with Knox's post. Their lawyer, Francesca Moresca, described Knox's behavior as attention-seeking and declared her return to Italy for a criminal justice conference, quote, inappropriate. Moresca continued, 
The murder is a tragic memory for the Kircher family. It's also an injustice for them, as they still don't know the full truth. Meredith's sister, Stephanie Kircher, echoed this same sentiment in an essay for the Daily Mail and hinted that the family doubted Knox's innocence. She wrote, It is difficult to come to terms with not knowing exactly what happened that night. Whether you believe the guilt or innocence of the accused, there are still contradictions and discrepancies in the judge's summary. Amanda Knox returned to Seattle in 2011 when she was exonerated of Meredith Kircher's murder. Upon returning to the U.S., Amanda Knox lived quietly for about a year until she made her life public again. She now works as a journalist and works at the Innocence Project. Knox has public, active Instagram and Twitter accounts, which may seem strange for a public figure who once decried the media obsession with her murder case. However, Knox explained her decision to make her social media accounts visible to the public in a 2019 media essay. She wrote, I made my social media accounts public because I just wanted to have what every other person around me had, the freedom to shout into the wind and say, here I am. Knox married fellow journalist Christopher Robinson in February 2020. Knox and Robinson co-host a podcast called Labyrinths, where they delve into stories of getting lost and found again through compassionate interviews, philosophical rants, and playful debate with fascinating people. This is the end, this is the end, this is the end. Beautiful Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Struggle Snuggles Ball Pythons. Struggle Snuggle is a small hobbyist breeder who wants to share the joy of ball pythons with new and experienced snake enthusiasts. Struggle Snuggle offers different types of morphs and standard non-morph pythons. Struggle Snuggle will offer insight on the first-time python owners and is available via email for questions on the continuation for healthy care of your new python. You can reach Struggle Snuggle through his Instagram at strugglesnuggle32257. That's strugglesnuggle32257. So you can get a look at the different type of snakes that he does own.